0: Good morning, church. Thank you, Byron and the worship team uh, for leading us into God's presence so beautifully. Um, it's my privilege to continue with uh, Philippians, and we're going to close out chapter 1 uh, today. So please open to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 uh, to 30. Um, the letter is about to move in a completely new direction. Paul has been autobi by Af- autobiographical, there's a word there, autobiographical, I should just read it the way I wrote it. He has been talking mainly about himself um, up until now and and, and what he's going through and how he's processing those things. But now he turns his attention fully onto his audience, uh, the Philippians, and he's going to instruct them in godly living. So this is going to be practical. This is going to be direct uh, at you and me this morning. And there's some powerful uh, nuggets in here. So let's read them together. In verse 27, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflicts that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Every now and again, you read something in scripture, and the best thing you can do is just stop and think about what you've just read. It's too profound to move on. You miss it if you move on. And that happened to me when I read this first phrase only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's profound. Paul is using picture language of a scale. And on the one side, you've got the gospel of Christ and the glory and splendor and the weightiness of that. And on the other side of the scale, you've got the manner of your and my life in equilibrium, equally balanced, one worthy of the other. That's incredible. If you think about it, only let your manner of living be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I want you to let that sink in, if you can. The weightiness of the gospel of Christ in your manner of life, in perfect equilibrium. And what Paul is saying here is powerful and necessary. Powerful because... Whose life can match up to the gospel of Christ? Necessary because so few of our lives come even close to that. Many of our lives don't match up at all, and that is a problem. He's saying your life should match up. It should be equal. Now, this might sound a bit different to what Cheryl just shared, but I think it is going to line up shortly. Uh, He's not putting a heavy on you, by the way. You might feel like I'm putting a heavy on you. He's not. Don't worry. We are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. But the way that we are naturally wired in our thinking, we gravitate towards always wanting to earn the right to the table. And I want you to, I'm gonna use a simple illustration you've heard many times before, uh, the, the horse and the cart, all right? We, when we make good works, the focus, as if these good works have earned me a spot at the table, you are putting the cart before the horse, and if you put the cart before the horse, the cart and the horse aren't gonna go anywhere. That's not how it works. So this is how it works. This is how I understand it. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. We have done nothing to earn it, to deserve it. It is God's grace towards you and me that we see him and we believe. Okay? We are made righteous because of that. We wear these perfect clean robes. Because of that, it has got nothing to do with anything we've done up until that moment. That's the horse. That must come first. Any attempt to work hard to earn that will fail. That's not how anyone will get saved. We are saved totally by grace. It's the work of Christ on the cross that saves us. That's the horse. But... Grace continues to work in you after that and help you to live a life where you fulfill the plans that God has for you and you do the good works that He has prepared for you in advance. So, good works are not unattached to this process, they come next. They follow, they must follow. If the Spirit is working within you and me, and grace is working within you and me, then grace is helping us to fulfill the works that God has planned in advance for us to do. In an attempt to not put the cart before the horse, some of us have lost the cart altogether. There's meant to be a cart. It's meant to follow. Grace Saved by grace through faith in Christ, leading into grace helping you to live your life out for Christ, which is filled with abundance of good works, which help you to bring your life into equilibrium with the gospel and to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So few people understand grace correctly. We think Many people think that it diminishes our responsibility towards God's obligations, moral responsibilities. Because um, God doesn't require good works from me, because it's not dependent upon how hard I do and try, we then think grace means that the moral standard that God requires from us gets lowered. That's not true. Grace does not lower the standard of what is required from you and me, and the moral obligations haven't changed. There is a manner and a way you and I as believers are meant to live on this earth that line up with who who we are. And grace doesn't lower the standard. The standard stays the same. But grace is involved. Grace, I want you to hear this, grace helps you get to the standard. You can't do that on your own. You've tried that up until a certain point and it fails. But grace is able to help you achieve the standard that God has for you. So Paul is not putting a heavy on us here, church. He's not telling us to do something we cannot do. He's telling us to do something we can do because of the work of grace that started from a place of total inability when you could do nothing to please God. When you could do nothing to achieve the standard that he required of you. Grace, God required and continues to work in so that... Sorry, I just want to read this to get it right. It is not because of the work of grace that started from a place of total inability to do anything that God required and continues to work in us that we can do the things that God requires. I'm really messing that up. Okay, I'm going to leave that note. There was a time you were totally unable to come to God. Nothing you could do could please Him. It was his grace to you that you could see him and that you could see how much he loves you and what he's done for you through Jesus Christ, his son. And you responded to him and you believed in him. And grace continues to work in you, to help you, that sanctification, to live a life that's worthy. Are you going to get it right every day perfectly? No, we're messing it up all the time. But God's grace towards you is this ability to help you get to a standard that does matter. We cannot live lives as Christians where our lives are totally out of balance with the gospel of Christ. That's not what God was intending for us. How great is this work of salvation that you are working in us, Lord. May our hearts be wide open this morning to receive all you have for us in your word, and may we have the grace to live it out for your glory. I've entitled this sermon, Living Worthy of the Gospel of Christ, and um, it's um, a big uh, title. And there's three points. And the first one is to help us do this, because we need to get practical. It's one thing to say to you, you need to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. But a lot of you are going to go, what does that look like? How do I do that? Where do I start? And the first point is, know who you are and where you're from. Now, that might sound like a strange opening point in teaching how to live worthy of the gospel, but I can assure you, rather than going off on a tangent, this is the exact opening Paul chooses in his discourse with the Philippians. When Paul uses the word manner, he uses it in reference to citizenship. So when he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, he is using a political term and he's talking about citizenship. Citizenship is important in context to the Philippians because they are a Roman colony. They are a miniature Rome surrounded by a bunch of people and states that do not have any of the Roman privileges. They have all of the immense privileges that come with being Roman citizens. If you lived near Philippi, you would have been extremely jealous of their privilege, and if you were Philippian, you would have been immensely proud and protective over those privileges. Rome was the power of the day. Anyone who had Roman citizenship had incredible privileges in society, Um, and there was a certain way that Roman colonies were expected to behave. And so citizens would be watchful over their collective behavior so as uh, to protect the privileges that they carried. So when Paul uses this word citizenship, a Philippian ear perks up and goes, "We, we know a lot about that. We carry great pride in our citizenship as Romans. And Paul's cleverly using something that we're triggering them to point to something even more powerful. He's appealing to, uh, he is reminding them that they are not just citizens of Rome, but they carry a greater citizenship. One with greater privileges, with greater responsibilities. And church, you need to hear this this morning, South Africans, we have dual citizenship. I forgot to bring my South African passport. I was going to hold it up in front of you all proud and wonder how proud you'd be. My South African passport has not been easy for me as I've had the privilege of traveling the world with it. It's been one of the most difficult passports to get into certain places. When we were on the Dulas, we had 50 different nationalities. And the the bursar used to stand up in front of the ship's company all the time and go, please pray that we will get these 50 South Africans permission to get into this country. We were a problem. This was back in 2000. I don't think anything's changed. But my South African passport is significant. Why? Because God chose it for me. God chose for me to be a South African. And he has a sovereign prov- providential purpose in that. Some of us are thinking about running away far too quickly, and I want to be sensitive about this, because sometimes God is going to lead us to go in a different direction and go away, and then that's right. You should do that. But I often look at my saving and passport and go, Lord, I could do a lot more for missions when I was in the Muslim world if this was New Zealand. If this was, I don't know what the New Zealand passport is. I want to say it's black, but I don't know. Um, if this was just New Zealand, Lord, I would have like, crossed this border easily and we would have stayed. We would still be there. We would still be planting a church amongst this, the Muslim people. But the South African passport is problematic and I can't do what uh, I think you want me to do. I had to look at that passport and I had to hear the Spirit say to me over and over again, I chose this for you. It's not a mistake. You're meant to be a South African. As significant as it is, though, it's also temporary. I won't always be a South African, I don't think, at least. Maybe we get to heaven and God, you know, the new heaven and new earth looks exactly like this and we're South Africans for all eternity, maybe. But I don't know that. What I do know is that I have another passport. And it's far more powerful than that green one I've got lying at home. And... Inside, it doesn't say Mark Wood, because that's just my earthly name. And one day, God is going to give me my real name. He already has it. He has a new name for each one of us, which is who we really are, that he's going to reveal. And inside that heavenly passport, that can never be removed, and I already have it. I I can't show it to you. I can't see it, but it is secured. It's there. There's nothing left to do to earn it. It's done. You are a citizen of heaven already. Done. With a heavenly passport. With a new name. With wonderful privileges eternally that can never be revoked. And I'm quite excited for my new name because Mark is a bit bland, to be honest. Okay? But this passport stands for eternity and it's already mine. I am and I will forever be a citizen of heaven because of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When Paul is in Jerusalem and then they're coming after him and he gets captured and they're all uh, shouting and screaming. And there's a Roman centurion next to him. And Paul says to the Roman centurion, actually, you know, you've got to be careful how you handle me because... I'm a Roman citizen. And Paul was. And the Roman centurion gets scared at that moment because he knows the wonderful privileges that come with being a Roman citizen. And he says, I became a Roman citizen at an enormous cost. It cost me a lot to become a Roman citizen. Do you know what Paul's response was? He said, I've been a Roman citizen since birth. I was born a Roman citizen. Church Your heavenly citizenship was secured at an enormous cost and it has been yours since your spiritual birth and you can never lose it. How you live here matters to God. Okay. He wants us to live on earth Remembering that we are actually citizens of heaven. In other words, live in accordance with who you really are. Alexander the Great is said to have walked up to a lazy soldier in his army and said to him, what is your name? And the soldier said, Alexander. And Alexander the Great said, change your name or your ways. You're not worthy of the name Alexander. So change your name or change your ways. And I want to say to you, church, you don't have the choice. You cannot change your name. Your name is graven on his hands and in his heart, and it is secured permanently forever there. So we've only got one option left, and that's to change our ways. And God is faithful in giving us his spirit and giving us grace. The same grace that enabled you to believe is the same grace that continues to work in you to help you reach the standard of living that is appropriate for the one who carries his name. Citizens of heaven, may our ways line up with the great name that we we carry. The second thing that Paul says in this section that would help a citizen live worthy of the gospel of Christ is he says, stand firm together. Stand firm together. After calling them to a higher standard of living by reminding them of their heavenly privileges and responsibilities, Paul goes on to remind them that while they're on earth, They are still behind enemy lines. And you will face the necessary pressure that comes with that. Satan is the ruler of this world. He has lost the war in heaven. That war is done. He's out. He is down here now, angry, and waging war against the church. His power is limited. He can only do whatever God allows, and his end is sure. But he will make life difficult for you and me because he's angry at God and his attack, the war, is on the church. We are behind enemy lines. That comes with pressure. That's why um, Paul is saying here, stand firm. Christians are meant to face opposition, the side of heaven. It happened to Jesus, and so it will also happen to us. You will have pressure on your church. And it's a sign that you're saved. Isn't that a beautiful thing that Paul says in here? This is a sign to them of their destruction, the fact that they're so aggressive against you, and it's a sign to you that you're saved. One of the funniest debates I've watched on YouTube is a debate between an atheist and a Muslim. And I'm kind of there going, why is Satan arguing with himself? What's, the, what's this debate about? Is it the fastest way we're, we're going to get to hell? It, it, it doesn't make sense. But the church will have massive pressure placed on her, and that does make sense. And you and I are going to have to stand firm. And standing firm has two um, connotations to it. Two things I think about when I think of standing firm. The first is the one I've just spoken about. There will be external pressure on you. To sta- there's no point standing firm if it's a breeze, right? But you need to stand firm if there's something pushing back against you, then, then you need to plant yourself and, and, and stand firm. So that's the one thing it implies. There's going to be this pressure coming down upon you. The second thing standing firm implies is you will have something firm to stand upon. Because you can't stand firm if there's nothing there. Yesterday, I uh, had a uh, supper with Dave Kettles, and uh, you know, Dave's a fantastic storyteller. And he uh, told us about uh, going on a trip to the Arctic and um, in a storm. Where this little boat that's sailing through the Arctic that can cut through ice—you must ask him about the story. It was amazing. Um, they're in this massive storm, and he makes the silly decision of going. I want to see this thing with my eye. They've told you lock yourselves down, you know, in your rooms, in your beds, sleep this one. Uh, get you know, don't be awake for this. And the boat is apparently going 45 degrees this way and this way. Now, those of you who know nothing about boats, that'll mean nothing to you. I was on a boat for. Um, three years, and when that boat went three degrees that way, people got very angry with me. I was in charge of the the degrees, okay? My job was to keep us on zero. When you're on zero, you feel like you're walking on flat ground. When you're on one degree, you feel like you're on the side of a hill. One degree. Already, you start to feel like there's a little, little bit more pressure on my right leg than on my left leg. At three degrees... Everything on the left-hand side of the ship falls onto the right-hand side of the ship. So the ship doesn't just go one degree, two degree, three degrees, four degrees. You go one, two, three, emergency, emergency, 45. Okay? And Dave's saying that the storm is so rough that this boat is going... And it is chaos. And he wants to see it with his eyes, so he goes up to the bridge and he... They've battened down everything. Everything that's a chair or a table anything is all tied up because nothing can be stable anywhere. And Dave thinks he's going to be okay because he's holding on to something that's, that's firm. And when the ship hits 45 degrees, he says this. And you know Dave won't use this word incorrectly. He says, literally, the floor literally gave way beneath me. There was no floor. And he ended up on the other side of the and smashed his hip in two. You can't stand if the floor gives way beneath you. No matter how strong you are, no matter how committed you are to what you want to do next, the floor gave way. And I thought about this point, and I thought about Dave saying that last night, and I want to say to you, church, it doesn't matter what the pressure is that's coming upon you, the floor is never going to give way you are planted on the rock of Christ. You can stand firm because what you are standing on will never be shaken, will never be moved. Do not expect an oppositionless heaven now. That teaching needs to be disregarded. There's too many scriptures like this one which say otherwise. And again, Paul's using picture language. He's using a picture of a soldier when he says stand firm. This is a soldier with massive opposition that has to stand firm. It's military language. And he continues with the military language by inventing another word. I can't remember what the word was that he invented the first time, but Matt said he invented a word in an earlier uh, part of this chapter. He invents another word. He seems to be quite good at that. It doesn't come across in the English, but the word that he invents is together striving, one word. When we read it, strive together, or strive side by side, Paul has taken two Greek words, striving and unity, and he's pushed them together and invented a completely new word. And if we want to correctly translate it, we would say together striving. So, This soldier is not standing alone. He's surrounded by like-minded soldiers, united in the same goal, contending side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is so important, and I'm preaching to the choir maybe today, but maybe not in the future. You cannot lone wolf the Christian walk. There will be a temptation upon you to try and do this on your own, and many succumb to it, Right? right? You're going to get hurt by people. We spoke about that a little bit earlier in Cheryl's word. You're going to get hurt by church, and there's going to be a temptation. If I, I don't want to ask you to put your hands up because I'm afraid if we were honest, everyone's hand would be up. But if I had to ask you, if you have ever been hurt by church, it wouldn't surprise me if most of you and I'm not saying it needs to be SBC necessarily, but church in general, I wouldn't be surprised if most of you put your hand up. And I could put my hand up to that. I've been hurt by church. And why is that? It's because it's Satan's primary objective is to get you and I isolated. And and because when we carry hurt and grudges and we don't forgive, It pushes us sometimes into a space where we don't want to trust people. We don't want to trust the people God's put around us. And we go and we become lone wolves on our own. And if you want to live a life worthy of the gospel, Paul's saying, not only do you have to see yourself as who you really are, you're not just a citizen down here on earth. You are a citizen of heaven with immense privileges and responsibilities. They will never be taken away. But God wants to help you live in line with it. He wants you to stand firm against the pressures that are going to come against you because you believe, because you are saved, because it's a sign of your salvation. And he wants you to do it together. And you need to do it together. You need people around you to help you. In this picture, the soldier will fail on his own. But side by side with other soldiers going in the same direction, they will make it. And that's the way we're meant to live this Christian walk. Here's a verse that I want you to uh, take a photo of or write down. Proverbs 18, verse 1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. I stood in that hallway two weeks ago speaking to someone, Sunday night. And he was honest. And he said, Mark, I didn't want to come tonight. I wanted to be by myself. But I knew that wouldn't be good for me. And so I made the decision to be here. Some of you this morning wanted to stay home. You didn't want to be here. I want to say to you, well done on saying no to that voice that says to you you can be by yourself because you can't and you and i are going to have to keep fighting that voice and using the wisdom that proverbs is saying to us whenever i read that i go lord because i've got lone wolf to me guys i get it from my dad my dad is the chief lone wolf that's why you don't know him is he saved yes does he come to church no has he ever come to church hardly ever Is he doing well in his faith? No. And you'll probably disagree with me. And one day we'll find out when we stand before God. It has hurt my dad immensely to stay away from you, But I understand my dad as I break things. I understand him because I'm a bit like him and I have those same thoughts and temptations where, Lord, I kind of want to do it my way. Sometimes I sit in elders' meetings. These are thoughts I never share with the elders. I'm sharing them with you. (laughs) And I go, I don't agree. I have a different way. Maybe it's time to leave and do it my way. And then I'll pray, and the Lord will go, I placed you here. I placed you amongst people, and this is good for you. And I want to say this to you as a lone wolf. One of the greatest graces to me in my Christian walk, maybe the greatest grace gift I've received has been you. God planted me at Sterling Baptist Church in 1997. And you have helped me walk this life and live for Jesus through some tough, tough stuff. You've kept me on track. You helped me keep running for Jesus. I stand shoulder to shoulder alongside you for the sake of the gospel. And I want to warn you, you will be tempted to isolate yourselves and when you are tempted, you need to remember the scripture. You are actually seeking your own desire. He who isolates himself seeks his own desire it will not work out well for you overcome that come to church come to small group come and be amongst other believers that's where you get to love and serve i spoke to someone this morning who just started going to small group after a long time not being at small group and you know what they've been saying to me this whole time that they've started this year what a blessing it's been I'm so hungry to read God's word because I want to love them and serve them. And so I want to go to these groups with something to offer and something to share. It has helped me in my Christian walk. It's the way we have been designed in Christ to be together alongside each other. Well done on being here this morning, but ask the Lord, where what does that look like to stand firm together for you? To do that better. If you want to live worthy of the gospel, stand firm together. The last point is maybe the most powerful. If you're going to live worthy of the gospel, then you need to understand that salvation and suffering are a package deal. Paul says something profound here. He says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, right? So belief is granted. It's not, you were clever, you figured this out, you were open, you were better than someone else in any way. As it has been granted to you to believe, that means that's on God. He's granted that to you. So it has also been granted isn't that an interesting way to look at it? For you to suffer. And I'm going to be real with you. Because, you know, sometimes people speak about suffering and um, you can kind of look at them and go, what do you know? And I want to remind you, Paul probably suffered the most out of anyone. So when he's talking about suffering, he's not talking about an idea, a concept. He's talking about something lived and experience. And if you know me, then you know that I have experienced some of that. But some of you don't know me. I don't want to take for granted that you know me and you know my story. So I feel in the Lord, uh, it's time to share something. I've waited a long time. I've asked the Lord when will be the right time. And I feel this morning's the right time. This last year has been incredibly difficult for me. I'm up to a, a year started last year AGM. The day before the AGM last year it was a Tuesday morning. I received a video footage of my youngest brother. Um, he had a psychotic break. You don't know him, I'm not talking about Steve. I've got another brother called Jason. He's uh, 12 years younger than me. And he had a psychotic break, but it was very scary because he was posting videos on YouTube. And he looked exactly like Steve looked when Steve first got sick. And he was far more dangerous than Steve was behaving when Steve first got sick. And I became fearful for my parents. He lives, they're 70 years old and he lives with them. They were in denial. So you've got one son you've been walking a road with, with catatonic schizophrenia for 15 years, and that has tired you out. You are finished. And you've done that alone. You haven't even done that with church. You've isolated yourself and suffered through that largely by yourself. And now at age 70, when your strength is failing you, it's happening again. And you're denying it. And I saw these videos and something came over me and i realized mark it's time for you to step up you're 40 years old dad's not going to lead the charge on this one he's not seeing it he doesn't know what to do it's up to you i went to the police station i showed them the videos how he was behaving and the threats he was making and i said i believe he's going to make an attempt on my dad's life, Uh, imminent. They agreed when they saw the video. That's the only reason they came with me. Because legally they're not allowed to come with me. You can't remove someone from a property legally without a court order. So originally they said to me, go get a court order. I said, we don't have time for a court order. He's going to do something destructive tomorrow. I need you to come with me and then i showed them a video and they said okay we'll break the rules nine o'clock tomorrow morning jason had started a countdown on facebook that was going to end at midnight so while i sat in the agm with you last year all i could think about was what did the countdown mean and what happens at midnight he had posted videos of someone violently shooting someone And then he wrote under there, I'll do whatever the voices in my head tell me to. I called my dad and I said, lock the gate. Mom's already living by us. She's not coming that side. Lock the gate. Do not underestimate him. I'm coming tomorrow. And I all night had my phone next to me. I said, you just keep sending me updates. I want to know that you're going to make it until tomorrow morning. I can't get there earlier than that. And on Thursday, the 24th of June last year, I had to go with four police officers to my house, my childhood home, and have my brother forcibly removed. It took them 15 minutes. That's how hard it was to take him out. He's a bodybuilder, very strong. Algoa did a a radio um, kind of question on the Friday, the day after this had happened, they said, what, what, when was the last time you cried? And what was it about? And people were sharing all sorts of stories. I didn't share my story that the last time I cried was yesterday when I had to drive behind my brother, caged up in a police vehicle. Because of me. And for the last year, it has been incredibly painful and difficult. But the story I want to leave with you from this experience is about my mom. And I want to say to you that actually, you know where I'm at a year later? I'm standing firm, together. I haven't left you. I've been here the whole way. Many of you have joined with me in this journey. God has provided miraculously over and over and over and over to sustain us as a family and to sustain me. It hasn't been easy. I did get booked off for two months in November and December. But as I stand before you and I reflect on the year, My heart is full of praise and joy and thankfulness to the Lord for his goodness to us. He has kept us and he is using this for his glory. The same way he used Steve's sickness for his glory, he's going to use Jason's. And I don't know how it ends. I'm just telling you at this interim point, God is with us. He is faithful and all of his promises are true. And here's a little snippet from the year. This is probably the one story that highlights it the most. My mom got saved because Steve got sick. That's her testimony. I think I've told you that before. She watches what this is doing to me. 90 days into this journey, I would not let Jason come home. He was not going to live with me at any point, And he was not going to live with my parents at any point for a year. God has helped me to keep him away from vulnerable people, which means I've had to have him in another place for a year. The first 90 days, there was no place that would take him, and so I was bouncing around between Freer Hospital, Cornonia, CMH, and nothing would work out. It was massive pressure and intensity. Everyone's trying to make me take him home. I will not take him home. I will not expose my kids to that. And um, my mom lived with us. So she's in the granny flat there. She sees the toll it's taking on me. And she makes a decision without consulting me. And she gets in her car. And she drives up to Sunset where my dad is. And she's decided, we are taking Jason back from Mark. This is our fault. This isn't Mark's fault. And I'm not going to watch Mark crack. I only have one good working son left and I'm going to protect him. And she was going to go drive to where he was, take him out of the power that I placed him in and then drive him somewhere else um, and lock him up somewhere where you give up. We would never see him again. On the drive up there, She hears a song. We sang it this morning. I didn't know we were going to sing it this morning. Amazing Grace. She hates the song. She thinks it's a song that non-Christians use at funerals. That's what she thinks of when she hears that song. I think it's a beautiful song, by the way. My mom doesn't like Amazing Grace. She's trying to switch the song off. She's hearing it in her head over and over, louder and louder. At the end of the song, you can do with this what you want. I'm just sharing what she what happened to her. She heard an audible voice say to her, "You don't get to choose the way that I show grace to your son." My mom has never heard God speak to her." And then he said this. he said Philippians 1:29, she just didn't realize that's what he was saying. He said to her, you can't have my love without my suffering. You can't have my love without my suffering. What do you choose? And she said, I choose your love. And in that moment, she, ex- she never gets to my dad. I mean, she gets to him, but she never ends up having the conversation. She never takes the thing out of my hands. She says, God stopped her. That Monday, she comes to me and she says, I want to tell you what happened. I was on my way to stop everything that you're doing to try and protect you. God intervened and spoke to me and told me to, to stop and just accept. And, I, and she did it like with joy. She's, it wasn't even a hard choice. It was, I choose love. I choose you, however that comes. And that's what Paul's saying to you guys, and that's how I want to end this. Salvation and suffering are a package deal. Some of you are suffering worse than than me. We all get a dose that is sovereignly chosen. But it has been granted to you to suffer. And if my mom can look at two schizophrenic children and go, okay, Lord, I choose your love, I accept, then you can also look at whatever God's placed into your hand, what you've had to deal with, and go, Lord, if you are giving this to me, if this is from you, I accept, because I also accept the salvation you give. And this is how this ties up beautifully. Earlier, when we spoke about that scale, All of our lives, weighty-wise, are up there and the gospel's pulling the scale down like that because the gospel is immense and we are not. But as God does his sanctifying work in your life, and he does that through your growing in your understanding of who you are, through your learning how to stand firm against the pressures of this life together with others, and then, with accepting and dealing with whatever level of suffering he's choosing to bring into your life, what happens is he's doing a work on you which matures you and grows you and starts to do that. And you, your life is worthy of the gospel. So I want to close in prayer. Lord, this morning, this powerful text, this church that you are faithfully working on because of your great love for her, that you showed us first on the cross when you gave your your son for us, and we didn't have to earn that at all. And as Cheryl said earlier, we stand now in these robes that are white. The dirty ones have been taken away. And you forget. You forget the past. You forget the sins. You look at us with great love and compassion. You have chosen to save us. Lord, I want to pray for the people here that they would grow in their understanding of who they are in you, that they wouldn't see themselves just in their earthly sense as South African citizens here on Earth. But I pray, Lord, that we would grow in our growing awareness that we actually are citizens of heaven, just passing through, soon to be given our new name and our eternal function. And Lord, I pray that um, as we meditate and think on that, that if there's areas of our lives that are not matching up and you've been speaking to us about it, that Lord, we would be convicted this morning and repent. And I want to say to you, church, your life doesn't match up, but if you will um, be open before the Lord and have a soft heart towards him and live a life of repentance, then increasingly your life will match up. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to stand firm. And I pray that we would do that together, Lord. I pray that people would not be isolated. If there are ones that we know who have isolated themselves, give us compassion and may we go after them and win them back, Lord. But may we strive together for the gospel alongside soldier soldier and soldier, shoulder to shoulder. And Lord, may we... Embrace whatever level of suffering you've chosen to bring into our lives because we trust you. You are going to use that for our good. You are going to use that for your glory. And it's a sign that we're saved. So thank you for your great work of salvation this morning, Lord, in every heart. And I want to pray if there's anyone here this morning who hasn't yet received Christ, who hasn't yet believed and seen uh, that he is who he says he is, and that what he did, he did for them. Lord, we pray this morning that the gospel might penetrate their hearts and they might respond. And Lord, may the rest of us, through sanctification, through living a life of repentance, through a growing maturity, have lives that live worthy of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, 10 minutes late, 20 minutes of coffee. Go out and enjoy it. Have a wonderful time. If you want prayer, if you've been moved in some way and you just want to pray through some stuff, the elders are up at the front. If someone else wants to stay and pray for people, they're welcome to stay and see if people want prayer. But go and enjoy some coffee.